Welcome everybody to Cloud Control. I am your host, Sean Harris, and it's been a while, so I'll remind you that our podcast today is brought to you by Spot by NetApp. Today we are joined by Zach Wasserman, who is the CTO and co-founder of Fleet Device Management, where he leads the technical vision and development of the company's open source endpoint management platform. He has extensive experience with Fleet's underlying open source technology, OS query, and has contributed to its development since the early days at Facebook. And his passion is enabling organizations to securely manage their diverse IT environments. Zach, welcome to Cloud Control. Thanks for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me, Sean. You know, this is actually a topic that I've wanted to get into because there's been a lot going on, not only in the open source community right now with companies like fleet that have um, open source roots, but also are trying to monetize it in some way, but also just endpoint security in the state of the world right now with a lot of things going on geopolitically, we see, we, we always see an uptick in security events and, you know, we have to remind users to protect themselves. So I think this is a really topical discussion that we're going to be having today. Give us a little background on fleet how they came to be like was it the open source project and we decided to found a company around it or give us a little bit of insight on that yeah for sure so the story really goes back to 2014 at facebook when i helped create os query which is an agent that sits on individual devices mac linux windows and reports information about what's going on in the system and the vision from day one there and and with luckily with a lot of management support was to open source that project because we believed in bringing better endpoint security tools to folks all over the industry. And so we started working on OS Query in 2014. We open sourced it by the end of 2014. And I've kind of continued working on OS Query and related projects since then. The story of Fleet really starts in 2016 when at my former company Collide, we built and then open sourced what we called Collide Fleet at the time. And that was a project that we in some ways kind of abandoned as we moved on to building a SaaS product. Uh, but it started to get traction with some really interesting companies. And for me, I've always been drawn to open source projects and projects that are being used and in, in creating value in people's work lives. And so when I left Collide, I became the sole maintainer of what continued to be called Collide Fleet. And for another couple of years there, I worked on 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 Fleet and improved it, helped it scale from initially it worked on about a thousand devices. I helped it scale up to about 20,000 devices. And then in 2020, I was approached by Sid C. Brandy, the CEO of GitLab, who is really interested in taking open source projects and building open core business models around them. So Sid saw what I had been doing. He'd just been through the pain of getting onboarded uh, at GitLab onto Jamf and the whole experience of trying to do MDM, and particularly for a remote workforce and a, and a progressive kind of company. And he wanted to see better options out in the market there. So to your question, Fleet was a project, the open source project was out there and we built the company up around the project. 
That's really cool, and and in a really unique space, really, because I think one of the big, I come from a sysadmin background. Like I cut my teeth as a Mac sysadmin in higher ed, and one of our biggest problems was as Jamf took off as the de facto MDM for Mac devices, keeping them in sync and making them have the same level of protection and the same controls that we put on that we were able to do with Windows laptops with like group policy and configuring our Active Directory correctly. Jamf was a really clunky and expensive solution that really never took off. And there have been other open source projects around trying to do what Jamf has been able to do. Right. Apple, Apple abandoning the enterprise. And I can go off on a rant on that for hours and hours and hours about how they don't support large enterprise correctly. Apple abandoning that market share and focusing on the consumer and the prosumer segments really put Mac adoption at a risk. And so it's really cool to see people trying to bring that. And the same with Linux, right? Linux, you had to go use third-party connectors to connect to AD. Sometimes group policy would work. Sometimes it wouldn't. Um, and I think that we forget how important the endpoint is when we're securing a network, right? We always look at the servers. We look at the firewall. We're always, you know, running that defense. But as we've seen in so many different attacks as of late, and as of late being 2016 through now, the vector is usually the endpoint. Right? It's not, it, they're not getting into your mail server because you left something open. They're getting into somebody's, they're social engineering their way into somebody's laptop. How does Fleet compare with, because a lot of people charge a ton of money. It's a great business to be in if you're doing endpoint security. How do you balance that need for security with making it affordable? Because I was looking, as I was doing research for this episode, I was looking at Fleet's business model. And it's actually pretty reasonable when it comes to what you offer and what you get and the, and the values that you hold. And we'll get into those in a second. Um, but really why, why now, right? Like why enter this crowded space that has a lot of money behind it that could push you out and what kind of accept and what kind of feedback do you get from your customers? Cause you have some large customers. What kind of feedback do you get about that being important? Uh, your, your price point being important and making it easy to integrate. Yeah, for sure. I mean, th those are all a bunch of really important factors for our customers. And certainly you can get off the shelf solutions from some of the biggest players for quite high price points. And they are, they are very effective but they do tend to lack some of the integration points that in particular folks are looking for when they think of doing things like detection engineering in, in the modern day and being able to actually get the data out of your detection systems, write custom detections, integrate uh, for custom response and that kind of thing. And, and then I think additionally, that's on the security side. Then on the more IT side, you, you, know, you mentioned Jamf and things like that, there's a there's a real rigidness to those systems where Jamf on its own is primarily only useful for the IT team. And so we really think of how can we how can we 
help to enable this trend of kind of IT and security blending together and help teams save effort and save budget by consolidating their tools. So with one with one platform, Fleet gives you MDM, it gives you some endpoint security, it gives you a ton of data for detection engineering, it gives you vulnerability management, and you can do it all on one agent, and that agent is open source. So additionally, that means that you know we get to work with the community to improve the OS query agent, and we get to all benefit not just us, but all of the other organizations, which you know range from tiny up to organizations the size of, of Microsoft and VMware who are using OS Query as portions of their security products, we all get to benefit from the improvements that are being made to that core there. Yeah, and I think that's one of the great points about, especially the security and the DFIR side of our industry, right, is these open source projects that begin small get picked up by, get sponsored by Facebook, get picked up by Microsoft, get picked up by a financial institution because of that flexibility, right? Like it, it goes to that whole shifting left thing that we talk about when we talk about it in DevOps or um, platform engineering, shift left. Everybody has a responsibility in active security. Everybody has an op, uh, an, a, uh, a responsibility when it comes to financial wellness of our cloud environment, right? It, that shifting left is really important. When it comes to endpoint security, how do you ensure the security and the stability of your code? Being an open source project, a lot of people can contribute, right? How do, what goes into the thought process from a community, or not from a community, but from a project management standpoint of ensuring that your code is secure? And I'm going to get into software bill of lading and library nerdery here in a second but just really if, how, how how do you ensure that somebody like me doesn't come in and put a backdoor or a pinhole into your code yeah for sure i mean it it's a question that i think folks have been asking about open source for a long time and i'm just firmly of the opinion that like black boxes don't lead to security that you know if you are an organization who makes critical security critical components like you're going to have nation state actors looking to embed their own uh, resources within your company to try to do that sort of thing and so i'm a huge believer in transparency like you can see every commit that's out there on github and we as a core team you know have just a handful of people who have all you know, met in person and established some relationships around this. Both of us have been working on this project for years who are reviewing all the code that goes in and then it's there for everyone to review. And I think that like, that transparency is what enables trust because otherwise we're just relying on the on someone's word, but we don't get to actually see the evidence of what they're doing to secure the integrity of, of their product. For sure. And then... Conversely, desktop secure or endpoint security, let's just call it endpoint security agents have traditionally used a lot of background power, background resources, right? To do the, that detection. How do you approach that balance between needing to detect, needing to know what's going on, needing to be, watch every packet sometimes going across the wire when it comes to 
the lightweightness of your because that was one thing that that's one thing that stood out to me as I was going through the GitHub was how lightweight that agent is and how and and how active the community is into tuning it so that it does ride that razor's edge of one side versus the other trying to make sure that you my computer works and people aren't calling the help desk but yeah also for sure not sucking up all my resources yeah yeah and that's something that we've been thinking about since day one of the os query project because the goal was always to get this thing deployed on every laptop at Facebook and on every production server at Facebook. And those goals were achieved. And so we had to work with some folks who had some real exacting processes, who had some very careful monitoring, and we would we would hear from them for sure when those problems uh, came to be. So what OSQuery does is a few things. So one is by integrating sort of as deeply as possible into the native APIs. OSCREA never shells out to external tools to do the kind of processing it does. It, it You know, we as OSCREA developers do things like reverse engineering those command line tools to figure out what APIs they use and we call into those APIs directly so that we're minimizing that kind of overhead. And so everything is built and, and designed to be as performant as possible. Then we build in a layer of protection through something that we call the watchdog in OS Query, which is essentially OS Query watches its own CPU utilization and it will kill itself essentially. Uh, so the process terminates immediately if it notices that it's using too much CPU. And when it does that, it will also deny list the query so that the, the query that was currently executing won't execute again immediately. And so there are built-in mechanisms to try to have a sort of second-line defense there. Moving on from the nerdery behind Fleet, and you can check out Fleet on their GitHub. We'll post some links into the description of the podcast so that you can go check it out, play around with it, and learn more about it. Um, when it comes to the future of endpoint security, as as we have to secure more things, as we have to get into um, taking, being more aware of the realities of the world. You, you mentioned the nation state actors and we go back and forth on that. But um, what do you see in the future of, be, of endpoint security as our devices become less the laptop that we're used to carrying and more the iPads and the phones and the the tablets, if you will, if we're going to get away from brand awareness, because you have to think of the MDM functions that Android has as part of their workspace and the way that they really work with the Android platform and MDM and Apple's unique approach to MDM and their really gated approach to it. So as that picks up with our handheld devices, how do you guys, how does fleet approach that? And what's the vision to handle that for fleet? Yeah, for sure. So I think the future is the proliferation of different kinds of endpoints. And it's not just these different kinds of workstation endpoints that we're talking about. It's also IoT and OT. Those things are endpoints. I think that things like containers and the and the and the um, the nodes that run containers in a Kubernetes cluster, those are endpoints as well. So there's a huge proliferation of these things. But but back to you the core question that you ask. I mean, Fleet's approach is let's let's 
try to provide the best abstraction that we can around these differing APIs. So we released earlier this year, Mac OS MDM. We're going to release in the next month or two, Windows MDM. We'll be releasing next year, Android and iOS. And what we've generally what we've been doing is we've been following what's worked for Mac OS. Uh, because I think that Apple was kind of the, the pioneer in the MDM space here. It's a little over 10 years we've had MDM on, on um, Apple devices. And so we're taking the patterns that seem to be working for the Mac admins and we're applying them everywhere. But we're also embracing the more modern concepts. I, I heard you mentioning DevOps a good bit in there. I mean, we're really embracing things like configuration as code, GitOps style workflows. And so I think that that's a, a big part of the next generation of MDM and device management software is that like ClickOps, I think is, is going to go away in larger organizations. I'm sure it will continue for the smallest orgs, but for the folks who really need control, who need auditability, and who need approval workflows and that kind of stuff. It's like, let's use the collaboration tools that everyone's getting used to, to bring in the kind of capabilities that we need. And so Fleet's challenge is how are we gonna build configuration files and formats that will abstract these concepts that are similar, but not quite the same across all the different platforms so that our, our admins, our users can benefit from those new techniques. And from a response standpoint, when an, a breach happens or an intrusion happens on somebody's endpoint, we'll just call it that, right? What is your approach to the future of especially mobile as it grows, mobile device forensics, and how do you how, how does Fleet look at forensics tools and helping with that initial collection before before these vulnerabilities can get in there and destroy their, because a lot of them, they're getting smart, right? They know what these forensics tools are looking for and they know how to wipe their tracks. How does Fleet see that as a threat? And what does Fleet from a open source or even the paid project um, plan to do to kind of help prevent that so that we can be more effective in the, in, in the response aspect of a, a security event to get away from MDM, right? For sure, for sure. Yeah, I mean, back to the security side, I've always been a big believer in defense mm -hmm. in depth. Like, there are each step forward that an attacker takes will leave a track. And and so each one of those tracks, even though they may be covering up some and doing the best that they can, it offers a potential for us to do a detection. And so I think that, you know, both my, my recommendation for security teams is like, make sure that you know and understand what detections you're doing and i think that, that this is what's contributing to the rise of concepts like detection engineering where the it's actually the detection response team actually knows what detections are being run it's not just a black box piece of edr software that's that you know claims to do some detections but we don't know which ones it's like let's actually look at things like the miter attack framework and and defend framework and make sure that at all the different stages of life cycle of a cyber attack we have detection possibilities and then fleet kind of tries to get out of your way a bit like we give people libraries of queries that 
that they can be running, but really we enable the team to define what it is they want to look for, to integrate deeply into the other systems. So people have, you know, Sora, Sora systems, the security orchestration and automation systems. And so we have integrations built in to those and every part of what fleet does is kind of integratable via apis or via the programmatic uh, configuration as code kind of workflows that i talked about and so i think that it's it's really that that taking advantage of of defense in depth and looking for all the possible ways that we can do detections that is the the key to addressing attacks from sophisticated attackers. If you were coming into an organization or my organization to give a talk, what are, and, and you're talking to my admins, my sysadmins, my desktop admins, my security teams, what are some of the blind spots that you see most often when it comes to endpoint management and visibility? And how do you recommend people address them? Like what are some, what are some of those challenges? Yeah, if it's a really interesting question. Even for organizations who we would think of as as quite mature, there's often very basic low-hanging fruit that's still there. Like two organizations have not just policies because usually they do have policies in place around making sure that OS and critical software components are updated. But like do they actually have the tools in place to get that done? Are they actually measuring that those things are getting done? this kind of thing can can be a real challenge when it comes to endpoints the heterogeneity of them is a big challenge and so you know something that fleet recommends is we provide a, a concept that we call policies and and how can you dynamically determine which devices are in and out of compliance with your sort of organizational security policies or maybe they're even literally compliance uh, framework policies but getting visibility into where your weaknesses are in order to be able to address them is huge and it's not often something that you get from the more out of the box solutions uh from your jamf it's like oh if you have to start writing custom you know scripts and extension attributes if you're an it admin and you want to be able to see info that's not automatically collected by Jamf. And if you're in CrowdStrike, like you have to try to extract some of that data out, but you're really kind of at the mercy of, of CrowdStrike on, on what the system is shipping out. So really to start in, in most organizations, it's like start to get a really good sense of what's out there and then build your policies and your workflows to address the highest impact issues. That's a very good point. And you brought up another point about updating behind the scenes stuff that people don't think about. And that's a big thing when it comes to contain the, the, the rise of containers, right? Um, the more that we decouple services and loosely couples and run them in containers like Kubernetes, visibility and observability, while two different things, and we can get into the nuances of that one, are really important in a containerized environment at scale or any scale, right? When it comes to things like knowing what open source libraries, like the one that I go back to a lot is the Equifax breach a few years ago, where it was because of a library that had a vulnerability that had been there for 10 years before anybody knew it was there and figured out how to exploit it. And when they figured out how to exploit it, 
it just happened to be somebody that had a lot of data on every person in the United States and it got released. When it comes to supply chain security, right, and open source, how do you approach ensuring that the libraries that you guys ingest and use as part of your code, but also alert and get that visibility into the containers? What level of access do you have to have? And what are some of the, um, what are some of the sticking points when it comes to that endpoint management and detection inside of in a containerized environment? Because it's so different than my laptop where everything runs on it. Yeah, for sure. Containers are uh, are a really unique and interesting opportunity to be able to do uh, static scanning. You know, let's scan the container images beforehand. And that's not something that Fleet focuses on today. There are a lot of great tools out there for doing that. And I think that, uh, you know, I would highly recommend for folks who are using containerized environments, like get those containers scanned for the vulnerable dependencies and and you know there's there's a there's a product from pretty much every security vendor out there for doing that kind of thing what where fleet is is more focused on vulnerability management is kind of the more dynamic side so what is actually installed in a running system and which you can do you could certainly do on a container but it's not typical that folks are installing new dependencies on running containers they're usually baked in uh, but it's more, it becomes much more relevant on your container hosts. So the node in your in your cluster, that's probably a VM or actually a physical piece of hardware that's gonna live a lot longer, that's not pre-baked. Uh, maybe you're managing it with, uh, with Chef or Ansible or something like that. And so Fleet can provide the dynamic look into software inventory on those and keep that data really up to date and start to correlate it with vulnerabilities. And, and then we layer on um, kind of the standard vulnerability severity scoring kind of stuff like CVSS, but also some, uh, some newer things that help with impact like the CISA known exploits, uh, which, you know, there's only a thousand or so uh, uh, vulnerabilities in the CISA known exploited vulnerabilities catalog while there's, you know, millions of software items out there. So that gives us some really great opportunities for prioritization and Fleet tries to lean on the things that help folks pick out the most relevant stuff to focus on. That's why I asked that question this way, because I think that people forget that you can, that security is a multi-layered approach. Right, if, especially in these dynamic environments that we that we're moving to, where we're decoupling services, we're trying to stack tons of stuff into little containers that are isolated for security. But there's still a level that needs to be done at the host. You can't just leave your host open to the world and think that your pods are going to be secure. A, because nobody understands Kubernetes at scale, right? But B, just because we have so much running in the background, there's so much that we have to look at you have to take that multi-layered approach when you approach securing an entire platform or operations. What is it like to have a project that you've created get picked up by the Linux Foundation and made part of the Linux Foundation, the CNCF, right? These, these big organizations that incubate open source as a business model. What's it like to get picked up by that? And what's been the experience? Positive, negative? 
run us through that because I don't think a lot of people understand what goes into a project getting picked up like that. Yeah, it's it's really cool, and it was an interesting experience for sure to watch the project migrate from the sort of benevolent dictator Facebook supports it and runs it to the the community and foundation based approach. I'd say that you know the best thing about it is just the the legitimacy of the name to be able to show that there's a, a foundation, there's a real business entity around this. This kind of thing becomes super important when doing some of this endpoint kind of stuff like working with Apple. Apple only wants to work with you if you're you know, part of a foundation or if you're a business entity yourself and we need to get code signing certificates and that sort of thing. And so, uh, so that's really huge, but it's cool because it also just completely democratizes the governance of the project we don't have that dictator uh, of facebook around who did grow great job supporting the project for many years but now it's fully supported by a community and as if you will a small consortium of of companies who are really the core contributors to it and i think again with that le- legitimacy it lended to it by being a project the linux foundation uh, we also see some of these mega corporations, you know, the Microsofts the, and the VMwares picking up the the project as well and starting to integrate it. Do you see these companies that you just mentioned, right? Facebook's a great example because they've open sourced several core technologies. They open sourced Node. They open sourced a bunch of stuff, security and operationally. Do you find that as you get that legitimacy from the Linux Foundation and being picked up as a sponsored project, do you see that these companies are more willing to participate in that community? And does it drive, like, do you, do you get a lot of feedback from Microsoft on not so much what they want to change, but just what they contribute and how they want to contribute and see them more active in that community? I actually wish that we saw more. I have to say that most of mm. the contributions from OS Courier are, tend to be from smaller organizations. Uh, mm. And and it's, we've seen disappointingly little contribution from the companies, the large companies who've integrated OS Courier into their security products. Where we see contributions from larger companies is more often an individual on the security team who's using OS Query and who realizes there's a bug or there's a feature missing, and they they do it kind of to benefit their team. We haven't seen it much where those companies are investing to benefit their customers, and it's something that I would love to love to see more. And I think uh, it's not clear exactly how an open source project can kind of solicit the real meaningful engagement from some of these really large organizations where there's a lot of people, a lot of stakeholders. And so I think that it, it's actually like uh, like with many uh, open source projects, it's a community of small and and really invested folks that help make this thing happen. It's really interesting because I get why companies would want to take a very gated and guarded, that's the word I'm looking for, guarded, a guarded approach to their security apparatus, right? Like a big bank isn't going to open the doors and say, here's what we're doing security wise on our endpoints, right? Like that's, that's, that's not smart, but you would think that they would have a vested interest in securing, in, in, in contributing to the community of products they use. Right. Like that's the whole ethos of open source contributing 
per, uh, not promoting, contributing and providing positive um, experience in, in that contribution to help drive something as important as endpoint security. That's fascinating that they don't participate. More. Yeah. And actually, you know, it is more like the big bank is the one that's more likely and in, in my experience to contribute. It's the ones like hmm. uh, it's the organizations like uh, like Microsoft, where they've integrated OS Curry into Defender in some way. And they're actually it's part of their their profit generating apparatus, if you will, not their internal security operation. Mm -hmm. They are the ones who seem to be less likely to contribute. But you've got organizations out there, you know, like uh, specifically I can call out Bloomberg back when I was an independent consultant working on on fleet. You know, Bloomberg sponsored a bunch of really important work on fleet. And then we're happy to talk about that publicly and so you know big shout out to organizations like that who really are willing to talk about that and are willing to put some real resources on the line for that that's an interesting use case that you bring Bloomberg because I used to work in higher ed and one of my and because I worked in higher ed at a business school um, we had Bloomberg terminals we had a lab it was a, it was we called it the mock trading floor lab where they had Bloomberg terminals and they were doing this and we couldn't get into that device Right, because you buy them directly from Bloomberg, they ship them to you. You plug them in, and you open a port on your firewall, and it goes out and grabs what it needs from Bloomberg. You don't get to touch the machine that belongs to Bloomberg. That's a really good point. And you mentioned Internet of Things and unmanaged. I, I call them unmanageable devices because they're either by design unmanageable or they're by the vendor designed to be unmanageable. And that is something I never thought about was how you would put something like. OS, um, OS query or fleet or another MDM onto a managed device, ship it to somebody and control. It. So that's a, that's a really good point, especially in that use case in the financial markets where decisions have to be done real time. Um, when it comes to higher ed, right? Open source is really big in colleges where we see a lot of programs embracing open source. What do you, as an open source project sponsored by the Linux Foundation, what do you do to help grow that community of security professional? Like, how do you contribute back to that community of open source security professionals? Um, and how important do you think that is? Yeah, I mean, there's there are a lot of folks out there in, in higher ed and related research institutions that are using OS Query and using Fleet as part of their security strategy. I think something that we see really commonly is, you know, folks who have plenty of time or maybe not plenty of time, but they have time. They're authorized to spend their time to do work, but they have zero budget mm -hmm. to spend on software. <laughs> and so they often come to things like OS Query because it's like, oh, you can solve solutions uh, with this if you have the time to build up to that. And as well, Fleet, like the free version of Fleet is suitable for large organizations like certainly we've worked to make the premium offering compelling but we want it to be usable in a large organization by someone with with no budget and we hope that someday we'll we'll convert them so we see higher ed as as part of that as you know real real users who help to build uh, legitimacy for the product that we're building and who have real security needs that that in a lot of ways mimic the ones 
in large enterprises where they have bigger budgets. One of the things, that, and because I've been there, right, and I've been that guy in higher ed that didn't have any budget and had to figure out how to go and secure a bunch of VDIs that we were building for a lab and stuff like that. I really appreciate that. One of the things that I really was impressed with, and there's been a lot of talk over changes by certain companies to their um, licensing that have thrown people for a loop, is your ethos. What is, and it's on your webpage, right? And we can post to this. What is your commitment to open source stewardship? And you have these nine points of the importance of it. And I'm, I, number five, the free version of fleet is enterprise ready. And then number six, the open source code base will not contain any artificial limits on the number of hosts, users, size, or the performance. And then seven, the majority of new features can contributed by De fleet device management Inc will be open source. That is really cool because you go into benchmarking and how to, how you guys don't track your customers who use the community product. How did that ethos come to be? What, what was that critical moment where you're like, this is how we need to run this company. And what feedback do you get? Not only from your paid customers who are like, why would I pay to go buy it? Like what, what's your value proper around using your, paid product and then what's the community feel where you've made this and you apparently live by it right like i i don't see anybody saying that you've done anything dirty and then we'll talk about those implications on the license changes for terraform yeah for sure all of this is deeply inspired by what sid did mm -hmm. at gitlab and so he talks about it as the buyer-based open core model and so let's find, let's figure out how to make this you this tool usable by individual contributors at large organizations. Let's not put artificial restrictions in that will prevent them from doing that. And then let's build features that are compelling to the folks who can pull the budget and that kind of thing. And so for us, that means things like there's no SSO tax, like SSO is built in to fleet. It's just there. You can yeah. do SAML SSO. We'll give you premium features that might be compelling, like synchronization of roles through your SSO provider. But like, there's a checkbox that some that you know some security engineer or client platform engineer is going to need to check. Like, you know, this tool I'm bringing in supports SSO. We don't want them to have to go through a whole procurement process just to get that basic SSO. And then, uh, and then similarly with the limits on hosts, like. We want them to be able to get to a high level of adoption, you know, managing thousands or hundreds of thousands of hosts without paying us because we do believe that we will find ways to provide enough value in that premium version that someone, again, you know, the person with the control on the budget will, will go like, wow, we could just pay the money and flip the switch and start unlocking this additional value. That's the kind of thing that we're constantly looking out for. No, and that's really awesome. And that was really one of the things that's really had me impressed as I've been going through and researching for this is just your commitment to a full-throated support of the free and open software community and the importance of it. And August, I think, is when they did this. August, the HashiCorp decided to come out and say, we're switching our license model. We're, we're going to keep the for-profit model, but we're changing some aspects to our license. That has forked a couple different projects. One of them got picked up by the CNCF a couple weeks ago, Open Tofu. What has 
the response been not for how you feel about it, right? But have companies come to you and said, Hey, are you guys at risk of doing this? Because you have that for-profit side, right? You're in the, your for-profit side is in the business of making money, you're, but your open source is back to those roots of democratizing MDM and endpoint, detect, and endpoint management. So have you gotten any questions about that? And then what do you think the future of something is as critical to the development and the growth of platform engineering and DevOps as Terraform has been? Do you see open tofu taking off in that same way? And we saw it with Maria DB and um, MySQL when they were acquired. Do you see this happening more? Do you, do you foresee this happening more personally as the open source community becomes more of a open source with a premium, a premium paid model on these companies to make money? And is that a threat? Yeah, it's really interesting development. And I think we saw it before with Elastic mm -hmm. and uh, and Amazon. Mm -hmm. So this is this is not new. This is not new, but it's another example, sort of another domino falling, if you will. We we believe that with the model that that we've created, like there's no reason to there will be no reason to need to change our license in the future. We have a clear delineation in our code base between what is truly open source by, you know, Richard Stallman mm -hmm. standards, although he, surely he would disagree with the idea that there's any part of the code base right. that is not that way. But, you know, we apply an MIT license to the core of what Fleet is. Mm -hmm. And then there's this there's a directory within our code base where all the source is still available there. And just the license changes mm -hmm. and the license says, if you want to use these features in production, you need to have an active subscription mm -hmm. with us. And so the code is there, the, the source is available, but the, I think that this licensing allows us to get around some of the big challenges that Elastic faced and that HashiCorp faced with some of these pieces of software, which is the someone else running a SaaS business on top of all the work that you've been doing to generate the software. And I think that the the important assurance to our users and our customers who we haven't really heard concerns around this, but the story that I would tell them is, you know, that oh, that true open source core is there. It will always be there. And you and it's enterprise ready, mm -hmm. right? So like we want you to pay for these premium features. We will make them valuable and hope that you find the value in them and that you pay. But I don't think that we're at a risk of having to radically change our licensing model because if someone else wants to host Fleet Free and wants to sell it and that kind of thing, like, great, they should go for it. And that just provides for us more potential customers who might want to upgrade to the premium version because those features are there and we and we do kind of retain the IP on those features in a way that, you know, Elastic didn't formerly and that HashiCorp didn't formerly. Yeah. When it comes to the future of Fleet, both as an open source project and as a paid premium product, when you buy the premium, like I was trying to go through it and kind of get an idea of what it was like. 
do you guys have a SaaS component or do you plan on having a SaaS component at some point as you grow? Like, is that critical to your operations? And, um, because the reason I ask is we see a lot of people that are, that moved to the cloud very rapidly as part of the pandemic back in 2000 or sorry, 2020, um, aged myself there. And now they're trying to move back out of the cloud because they went had they went all in, tried to forklift everything the same way they had it in their data center because they, it's what they knew. Um, do you see SaaS being a critical part of the fleet, and do you see the hybrid continuing to be a part of the uh, of the fleet roadmap? Yes, for sure, uh, for sure. Yes to both of those. We started offering fleet cloud about a year ago. Which is, which is the standard fleet application that we host and manage for you. And we think that this is a great option for most organizations because the people who want to use fleet don't want to be focused on operating servers. And we make it as easy as possible mm -hmm. to run as we can, for sure. But we want those folks to be focused on getting their jobs done. And so in organizations where organizational policy can sustain it, then we think that cloud is a great mm -hmm. offering. But we also know that we work with organizations where they need to have on-prem or if not, you know, literally in their own physical data center within their own AWS mm -hmm. environment and managed entirely by then so that we have zero potential access to their production infrastructure. You know, that's, that's key. And so, you know, we're committed to continuing to support both of those. But for me as CTO and who wants to see our customers be as successful as possible, like I want to see them be in the cloud so that they never have to think about the operations portion. And we're making sure that they're spending 100% of their time working with Fleet on doing the things that are bringing value specifically to their organization. What was it like building Fleet from that on-prem endpoint product and building a SaaS platform around it. What, what was the engineering effort like that? And how did, how did your team approach it? And you know, how long did it take you? Right? Like, I think that's one of the thing that people want to know about some of these SaaS companies as they try to get their own ideas out to market is what, what's it like building a SaaS platform around an open source project? And what, what, what did you have to think about? Yeah, and what we've done is essentially a single tenant SaaS. So mm. each of our customers gets their own unique deployment of Fleet. And so a lot of our focus around around Fleet Cloud has been building the infrastructure and tooling that allows us to manage a number of separate instances. And there's trade-offs here. Like we don't sell cloud for organizations that have only a hundred devices because the economics don't work for us. Mm. We, but what we, the, you know, the big thing that we get is there's like no chance of mixing up anyone's data. There's no, there's no single database that contains data from multiple customers where it just requires a bug in the code to, you know, forget to select the tenant ID. And all of a sudden there's, there's data from one customer leaking over into another environment. And we don't see performance issues where one customer bumping up their usage causes issues on the other customer. So there's some, there's some real interesting trade-offs to be seen here. And I think that we'll see more organizations considering the, the 
pretty significant differences between building a multi-tenant SaaS and doing this single-tenant SaaS kind of option. And again, we've taken a lot of inspiration from GitLab. It's interesting to see that GitLab for many years had a multi-tenant SaaS and has actually just recently, I think in the last year, introduced a single-tenant SaaS concept for their customers who want to see more isolation there. So for us, just pushing the problem out to become an infrastructure problem and then taking advantage of all of the great DevOps automation tooling, you know, we use Terraform, we use containers, we use Amazon hosted services so that we can spin up and manage these environments with as little effort as possible and with as much isolation as possible has been, for me, an exciting way to approach this so that we can continue to focus our development efforts on new features that are bringing value to the customers. No, that's a really good point. And I really appreciate companies that do that openness that say, hey, if you have X number of endpoints, our product's not for you, right? Like you should think about using the self-hosted option and here's why, right? That openness is really, really cool from a company, right? Like you could go out and you could make all the money you wanted, right? Because endpoint security is a money maker. But the openness is the openness that you have around not only the project, but around the fleet as a company. Because I was looking around and like your whole employee handbook and your operations materials are all online, right? Like um, one thing that I got into because I was digging through the weeds was your CEO, right? And just his openness with don't do this. Don't send me a Slack message because I get too many alerts. Do this. Right. And I just that can't that radical candor to use a term that I really hate is really refreshing from a from an organization leader. Let's talk about you. We've talked enough about tech and we could keep going. I, I feel like you and I could keep going for hours and just nerd out. Um, I want to ask you about the personal side of security is my last tech question. Right. Like, how do you build that trusted relationship between um, me as an endpoint user? and having to own shift some of that security operations left towards me, right? To make sure I'm clicking on things appropriately and doing my security training. But how do you build that relationship in a, in a role that traditionally has been not the most friendly to each other from endpoint and security administrator, right? Like there's lots of jokes about the, the bastard operator from hell and people who take security as militant. And, but how do you balance that? relationship and make it so that your security team is just as trusted as anybody else in the organization and but the employees trust their security team to know that they're just doing what's best for them it's so important that relationship and i think that the the, the foundation of that that we believe in is transparency let the users see and understand what the security team is doing on their devices and i think that the the end result of that is users tend to, I think, figure out two things. One is it's kind of boring. Like no one is looking at anything juicy on your computer. They don't care. They have a job to get done and it's, it has nothing to do with anything juicy on your computer. I think the other thing is like this is really in-depth and sort of fine-grained stuff that folks are working on. So I think that when you start to show people, you know, this is all the stuff that we're monitoring and collecting on our computer, none of it's, like, juicy. It's all just, like, inner workings of a computer, the pieces of software that are installed, 
processes that are running, like, you know, not sensitive stuff, but that the security team is looking out for those things. And with the fleet product, you, we have functionality where you can show the end users exactly what's being collected and they can see the software inventory, they can see the vulnerabilities, they can see the policies that are being executed on their devices. And I think that that transparency just becomes a core part of building the relationship there. The other aspect is also, especially you know when we're talking about workstations, people obviously have a job that they're trying to get done on those things. And historically, there have been security and IT tools that have compromised people's ability to do that. And so again, just going back to being lightweight to not have it causing performance issues and draining people's batteries or making their their tools slow down or crash their computers and that kind of stuff, I think goes a long way. No, that's huge. And I laugh that hard because as a guy that had to run security and go and start locking down to manage compliance programs like SOC and, and um, ISO, right? It's like, yeah, we got to put this agent on a computer. Don't look at my computer. I don't want to look at your computer. I don't have time to look at your computer. I'm too busy trying to make sure other threats aren't coming in to know what you're doing on Discord. Don't care. Yes. Um, and I, I think that personality has to go both ways. And I'm as somebody who's had to work on the security team, and now that I work for a company where I am the pawn, right, that gets managed by the security team, which is totally different for me. Um, being personable and both sides, right? Being personal as a security administrator, being personable to my users and that transparency that you brought up is really important. But just letting people know that all you're doing is watching out for their best interests, right? At the end of the day, you don't want their credit card or their checking account or their personal information stolen any more than they do because it's a headache for you, but it's also a problem, right? Because it means you haven't done your job and that reflects poorly on me as the administrator. And so I think that, and then I will tell anybody who's listening, pizza or beer, right? You take pizza or beer to your security team, you're going to be their best friend forever, right? So it's, it's easy. I don't know how big your team is, right, at Fleet, but you also manage the community, right? So you're, you're, you're in front of a screen a lot. How do you encourage work-life balance with the team that you manage? But how do, and then how do you get that same work-life balance that you preach to your employees? Yeah, for sure. I mean, I think a huge part of it is just setting expectations mm-hmm. and then um, you know measuring what's actually happening. So for us in our, our engineering culture, we do estimations and we estimate our capacity on our teams and we're constantly course correcting on, you know, how one, how accurate are our estimations and two, how accurate uh, are our numbers around capacity. So I think just starting by trying to schedule reasonable workloads and then recognizing that like, yeah, sometimes occasionally, and it needs to be occasionally, the business needs people to pull a little bit harder. And then that kind of thing needs to be followed by vacation or some other way of resting. So it's something that that we always keep an eye on and we encourage our managers to keep an eye on that. And, and we've seen, I think, that people really deeply appreciate the flexibility provided by remote work. We're an all remote company and there's no office that we'll be asking people to come back into. Like that, this is not going to be changing. And uh, I think that people 
understand and and respect that they use their time really effectively when they're in work and then we show folks that you know when you're off work you're off like yeah slack's there but like manage your notifications turn them off turn on that do not disturb if there's a true emergency uh you know if you're a if you're a person who's in a role where there are you know true emergencies you may need to attend to we'll have alternate ways to get in touch with you but right. you having slack on 24 7 is is not healthy and not something that we encourage and it's something that uh you know we as founders also try to try to manage and try to set good boundaries around and set a mm -hmm. good example what do you do to decompress, right? What do you do? What's your favorite thing to do to have that work-life balance, right? For sure. For me, it's it's outdoors activities. So I live in in beautiful Squamish in, in British Columbia. We're about an hour north of Vancouver, and I'm kind of at the intersection of the mountains, the ocean. We've got amazing rock climbing, hiking, mountain biking, skiing is about 45 minutes away. So I am doing everything I can to get outside and enjoy this amazing recreation. I will be up your way next summer. I'm planning a big road trip through through British Columbia up to Alaska with my I, I, I do overland builds. My my way to decompress is overland I build overland rigs. And so cool. I have a I have an off road trailer that sits at the same suspension as my truck and um can go anywhere my truck can go and i have a six inch lift on my truck but i'm gonna bullish to go from salt lake city all the way because i grew up in north idaho i grew up in um at, my parents back property is the border of canada and idaho that's the back of our of the oh, property wow. i grew up on and so i grew up in that area and taking that road trip from alaska from utah is gonna to alaska from utah is gonna be a lot of fun that sounds amazing well it's been an hour. I don't want to take any more of your time on this beautiful Friday afternoon. I don't know what the weather's like up there, but I'm looking outside and I want to get outside and play. Um, we've been talking with Zach Wasserman. He's the CTO and co-founder of Fleet Device Management. Zach, where can people who want to contribute to the Fleet Community Project find you? And where can we find more about Fleet, the company, and the um, the and learn more about your culture and your commitment to open source? Yeah, totally. The easiest way to get to everything is from our website, fleetdm.com. Yep. That'll be in the show notes, I'm, I'm sure. Then, of course, we're on GitHub, fleetdm slash fleet. And we're very active on Slack, on the OS Query Slack and the Mac Admin Slack are the best places to find us. You find links to those Slacks also from our website. So if you want to kind of get into a live chat, we're there. And uh, otherwise, we try to be out at conferences. We were at DEF CON this year. We're usually around at all the big security conferences and, and the IT conferences as well. I really appreciate you coming on and talking to us about Fleet, your views on open source um, and just general nerdery. I, I really had a blast. I really appreciate you coming on. And like Zach said, you can find more about Fleet at fleetdm.com. Um, and you can join their, their Slack and learn more about their vision behind endpoint management. Like I mentioned, we will be at KubeCon and we will be at reInvent. And so if you want to swing by our booths and be part of our some of our community-driven content that I'm going to be creating, um, please swing by, come say hi, come not only learn about Spot, but just come nerd out with me and we'll talk about cloud stuff and we'll talk about containers and um, create some really cool content. And until next time, we'll see you in the cloud. <laughs>